So if you are a first-time guest this morning, man, you chose a really, really good uh, Sunday to visit because we are pretty excited to welcome back to our pulpit this morning um, a dear part of our own church family, Jack Easterby. Uh, Jack serves as both character coach as well as director of team development for the New England Patriots. He has previously served in consulting roles for the NFL, Kansas City Chiefs, University of South Carolina, Clemson, and the United States Olympic teams. Jack has spoken for hundreds of universities, countless charity fundraisers, He's been profiled by ESPN Magazine, Fellowship of Christian Athletes Magazine, Christianity Today, Boston Herald, USA Today. In his spare time, just so he doesn't get too bored, uh, he founded the Greatest Champion Foundation, which is connected to sports ministries all over the country. Uh, Obviously, this is a brother in Christ who is wildly gifted, and he is using those gifts for the kingdom of God. Uh, Jack and Holly have also become, uh, for Sarah and I, not just, not just friends, but dear friends and trusted friends. And we are so grateful. Um, I think despite you know, the, the litany, and that's just a sampling of how God has used Jack over the last many years, um, I think that he will be quick to tell you, um, out of all of that, what matters most is this. Not what he has done, but the Jack has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so I hope that you will join me in giving a very warm MCC welcome to Jack Easterby. Thank you, Travis, um, for that, and more than that, for the relationship that the Lord has given us. And um, I was thinking... In that song, when uh, he was singing, he was doing the hee-hee, that part. And he said, let us, let him see Jesus. Let us see Jesus um, in us and how I see Jesus in you and how I see Jesus in this church and how I see Jesus in the things that we've been able to do. You'll learn quickly as I talk, I'm not from Massachusetts. And so um, we came up here and the Lord has used this church in a mighty way. Your family, your staff who God is in this church when you come here from electric videos, amen, who was in charge of that, right? They should get a standing O um, to the fellowship, to the preaching, to the kick AM. God's here, man. God's here. God's here. As a matter of fact, I, I got a text early this morning from, from Travis that said they were even having a Jets therapy center for Jet fans <laughs> that was even going to emerge. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, Will you pray with me? Um, We're going to get in God's Word and have some fun this morning. Father, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and your faithfulness. And you thought it was a good idea before the foundation of the world that we would be here today, so we are. Father, this life is so much about control. Us edging you out for control Each other of us edging each other of us for control. And yet at the supreme top of the ladder, you stand, arms open, saying that I am in control. And Lord, all you ask of us is to admit that you're in control, that we don't 
make our hearts beat, that we don't make our minds move, Father, that we don't control much of anything. But Lord, you and a heart fully dependent on you is what this life is truly about. Father, I I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Been been traveling um, a lot recently, and um, had the privilege go out west to Arizona to uh, some spring training games uh, to watch um, drills and things that were happening in spring training. And so I was there getting a tour from one of the teams, and the higher up guys were showing us around. And uh, we walked over, and they were doing a bunting drill, right? So teaching the younger guys how to bunt, how to lay down a bunt. And if you're not familiar with baseball, you uh, grab the bat and you try to barely hit the ball so that you can run the first or maybe move the runners around. And so this uh, executive was walking us through this bunting drill and says, you know, this is the example, if you will, of how we try to control the game, right? And so uh, I look at him and he says, okay, we have this pitcher pitch because this pitcher has good control. And then we have the batters walk up one at a time so that they can learn to softly touch the ball and then control the game and make the infielder come up and then the base runners run and so here's how all this and so he describes this event as all being under control and so I'm watching this happen and a couple of guys are laying down some bunts and we're getting it going and it's kind of a cool thing and so as we begin to walk down the right field line we turn around and we hear pandemonium at home plate All of a sudden, the pitcher, who was so under control, had let a ball fly a little loose. He had hit one of his players in the side of the arm, okay? Then the bat had gone flying and and hit another guy who was behind him uh, in the leg, and so he was on the ground. So we looked back, and it looked like bad news bears. It was two guys laying on the ground, both of them, after this guy had just given us a lecture about how the drill was completely under control. And so you, you, you can only imagine your mind is going... Okay, well, are we really in control here? Because this looks like the bad news bears. I left there and got on a plane. And sometimes, you know, when you get on a plane, you get dehydrated. So I walked in. As I walked in, uh, I asked the, the flight attendant, I said, ma'am, would you mind if I could have a bottle of water? I said, that would really be a blessing. And so the flight attendant and the, the pilot, in this case was a female, they were talking back and forth. And so she said to me, she said, well, if you want anything done on this plane, this flight attendant is in control. And I said, okay, that's great. I said, I really just was looking for the bottle of water, but I appreciate it. And so I I asked, and she goes, and she says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm thinking about letting her fly the plane. And I said, okay, well, uh, might need two bottles of water, amen, right? So, so So she looked back, and she said, well, I've never flown a plane. She says, well, everybody knows you control the whole plane. So I went back and sat down, and they were laughing, and I'm thinking, it's, it's funny that, that they think one another's in control, and then everybody on the plane is just going to sleep, and I'm sitting there in my chair going, okay, wait a minute, who's really in control here, right? Who's really in control? Then I went to a university to speak to a college team, a, a BCS football team, and had the privilege of sharing Jesus with a group of people, and uh, I got there, and of course you meet the head coach, and he tells you, he says, okay, we'll have a meeting, and the meeting will be at this time, and I'll kind of control the meeting. 
And then I leave the meeting with the head coach, and I go to his assistant. And as I walk in, I introduce myself to a, a couple people as I walk in, and then this guy turns to me, and he goes, hey, if you want anything done, this guy, and it was the head coach's assistant, he's really in control. And then I leave his office, and I go to the guy who's controlling the food for all the players before they walk in the meeting. And the guy says to me, hey, if you want any food or you want anything really done around here, this guy here is really in control. And so I go through this for about three days straight, and I think to myself, isn't that a paradigm for life? That we stand with our arms folded, and whether it's just a servant or whether it's someone who's at the top of their paradigm or at the top of their career, life seems to be so much about control. Who's control of the House of Representatives? Who's in control of the politics? Who's in control of the mindset of America? Who's in control of the way that we do this? Who's in control of the way we do that? And all the while, we are looking at ourselves in the mirror to say, am I in control? Can I be in control? And how do I get more control of how I live and how I act and how I have my being? Today we're going to look at a phrase, a passage, that I want you to hear from God's Word that Jesus is always in control. I want you to hear that no matter how much your life, and you may have come in here in the rat race where your gerbil is moving and moving and moving in your head, and you may have a hundred things in your mind, I want you to come today to simplify and see that our God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, is always in control. And I want you to look as he comes face to face with one of his toughest moments. One of his toughest moments in scripture and in his whole journey in this game called life as he comes face to face with his betrayer, face to face with the army that is going to arrest him and hand him over to be crucified. And I want you to watch because you can learn a lot from someone in their toughest moment. Amen. You can learn a whole lot from someone in their toughest moment. So let's look at John's gospel. If you've got your Bibles, open your Bibles to John chapter 18. I tell our guys all the time, the Bible is the best book ever written. It is a 66-book love letter from God to you, and it is everything you need for life. And if you read it, it will change who you are. The Bible is a 66-book love letter from God to you, and it is everything you need for life, and if you read it, it will change who you are. If you're new to the Bible, there are four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I always say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John went to bed with a Red Sox hat on, amen, right? Uh, that's, um, that's a regional joke, <laughs> so you change it everywhere you go. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus very similarly, but they tell it with little different spins because their personalities matter, their mindsets matter, and the things that they want you to see really matter. Mark is, in some ways, uh, uh, an action gospel that is almost like you took a camera around with Peter and watched this unfold, right? So you have Mark who uses this phrase immediately, 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 because he wants you to see that we're going from one place to another, and we're going from one action to another. It's the shortest gospel. So if your goal is to read a gospel in a day, Mark would be 
be a great one to knock out, right? And then you have Matthew who grows up in this Judaism and wants you to understand that God didn't just all of a sudden appear in this Jesus form, that he is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, that he is the Son of God that is coming to grow the kingdom of God. So you hear this, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, and there's a momentum to Matthew, even from the very first verse of the very first chapter that you see, that God is building a momentum, that he didn't just show up, that he is building a kingdom of people that are rising up in all over the world. Then you get to Luke. Luke, I am your father. No, I'm just kidding. Luke is a doctor. He is a physician. And so he's passionate about the fact that God got messy so we can get clean. You see, he's passionate that the fact is, as a doctor would be, that not everyone in this life has it all together, but that Jesus came to the lost, that he came to those who didn't have it all together. And praise God for Luke, because there's so many days that I know in my life, as I look in my mirror, I'm like, you know what? Praise God that he got messy so I can be clean. Praise God that he doesn't wait on us, right, to get cleaned up to come to him, right? And so Luke, throughout his theology, talks about the lostness. And then we have John. And this is very important today that we understand the, the context of John, because John is, is a, an inner circle. He's what we call, in, in, in the athletic world, a roll dog of Jesus. Some of you guys may have some roll dogs, okay? This is a, a phrase that it takes its origin deep in the Greek, amen, okay? So, roll dog, a close friend, right? Uh, one of Jesus' inner three that he asked to pray for him in this very garden that we're going to talk about today, Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' close friend. And what happened after the first three Gospels were written was that people began to relegate Jesus just like they do today. Well, miracle worker, may have been a good dude, did some cool stuff, the whole walking on water deal, appreciate you coming out, right? Good idea, this is good, check the box, religious people, go over to your corner. But John was there. He knew that this was more than that. That this isn't just some religious stand-up, sit-down-in-your-chair stuff. That this isn't just like Hercules and all these other people that we've studied. This isn't like, like, like just some thought that you read in a storybook. This is the Son of God who came here to have authority and power and to do something about the problem of sin so that man could have a purpose. So just like a best friend whose best friend was relegated. Uh, I often laugh if someone relegates one of your favorite sports heroes, right? If someone says, well, they're not that good. They're just average, right? Like if somebody did that to one of our favorite quarterbacks, amen, praise the Lord. <laughs> not that that would ever happen. <laughs> but the idea is that if someone ever relegated, we're, we're prompted, right? You're prompted to defend. No, but, and you bring statistics, right? And you bring stories as if to say, wait a minute, we need to consider the truth that he's different. And so that's John's gospel. He has power. He has authority. He's the one that we should be taking note of. He's not like every other religious leader. He's not like the ones that, that were killed in a back alley. He, he's not the ones that were telling half-truths. He's not the ones that wanted your money and manipulated you. He is the great I am. He is filled with power and majesty and dominion and authority. So John engages his audience, and I would dare say he engages you today with the idea that God is, Jesus just doesn't want to be relegated. And this is going to sting a little bit as we get started with this, but I just want to challenge you. If you're a Christian here, and you hear Jesus being relegated, it should bother you. Hear me, church. If you hear Jesus put in a sentence with Muhammad and Buddha, it should bother you. 
Jesus is not Muhammad. Jesus is not Buddha. Jesus is not uh, the governor of our state. Jesus is not a political leader. He did not lead an insurrection against governmental forces. Jesus was the son of God who came to get messy so we can get clean. And there is a difference in that. So if you're a believer today, and you hear Jesus being relegated, you should side with John and feel that we need to do something about that, especially if he's your Savior. So let's pick up John because you're going to see him be in control, and you're going to see the intentionality of the way John writes all this, and I think it'll bless all of us to see Jesus is in control. And then the question very simply at the end is, have you let Jesus be in control of your life? Sermon point one and final one. Jesus is in control, but are you letting him be in control of you? So let's look at this. John 18, and let's watch God work here just for a few verses, just 1 through 11. And first we'll see his intentionality, Jesus' intentionality. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron. There, There was a garden, and John doesn't mention this. We know from the other Gospels that this garden was called Gethsemane, oil press. It's very awesome to me, the oil press, that kings were anointed with oil, and Jesus is praying in a garden that is the oil press garden. Uh, just, just amazing, the power of Scripture. And he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus, Judas, having procured a brand of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went out there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? Now let's pause right there. So they've had the Last Supper and they've come into Jerusalem. They've heralded Jesus, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And less than a week later, people have turned their backs. We've heard the Easter story, the Passion story, and Carl did such a great job last week sharing with us about Thomas. All these events have happened, right? Uh, Not excuse me, not to the, uh, all the way after the gospel where Jesus has uh, been risen, Jesus has interacted with Thomas. Okay, we've heard all that, but before this, so we're backing up before this. Um, and so the passion narrative is going to unfold over the next few chapters of the Bible, okay? And as the passion narrative unfolds, my prayer, and I, as you see this today, is that you see how controlled Jesus is. He's not a victim, He's not a victim of this circumstance. He's not a victim of what's going on. He's not, this is not an oopsie. This is like, I didn't know. None of that's going to happen. And so as you look back at the beginning of the passion narrative here, my challenge is that you see a few things that are actually happening and how intentional, and that's our first thought here, how intentional Jesus is. So we hear that Judas came with soldiers. So here come the soldiers, right? And we all know soldiers, right? Oh, we, oh, oh, here we go. Oh, we, oh, oh, right? Here come the soldiers. But the soldiers could only get there because Judas, who was somebody Jesus chose in the very beginning, had been told to leave this meeting, this gathering, this supper that they were having, and go do what you've been made or prepared to do. The soldiers could only find Jesus by Judas saying to them, hey, boom, come to this way. I know where he'll be. 
So it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that even in the arrest of Jesus, even in the surrender, the moment, right, where he's going to give himself over, that even in the moment of surrender, the intentionality of Jesus brings the fact that he's in control of the whole circumstance. He wasn't surprised these soldiers would show up. He wasn't surprised that Judas would be with him, right? And you got to think the whole reaction would be totally different, right? If he was surprised that Judas was with them, the surprise would be uh, all over his face, one of his beloved, his friends, his inner circle, right? And he sees them with them. <gasps> oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> but the interaction is not that way at all. Jesus actually goes and meets them. And almost in a way to say, I'm going to interact with you before you interact with me. You see, one of the ways you can know God is in control in your life is his intentionality precedes our understanding. His intentionality, his prerequisite, his thought pattern, it it precedes. Before the soldiers, listen to me, church, can arrest the one that they've come to arrest, the one who is going to be arrested is asking them who they came for. And that's very important. Why? Because the intentionality for all of us in our lives in 2018 is that God has come to chase after you even when you ran from him. The difference is he just runs faster. So the hard truth of the arrest of Jesus begins with the fact that he is more intentional than even the soldiers and the Pharisees and those who think they have a great plan and have met at night and schemed against him. He is more intentional than even them. He's more intentional than Pharaoh. He's more intentional than all of the heroes throughout Scripture. He's more intentional than that. So if you want something to be in control, and you want something to be in control of your life, intentionality matters. One of my favorite birthday presents my wife has ever gotten me. You know how married a couple years, and you start thinking, okay, what are we going to get each other here, right? And it's coming out of the same budget, so you look online, you're like, oh, okay, Brooks Brothers, that's going to be good. <laughs> and you already know, you know, those of us guys who do the finances, you got that joke. She came to me with a box of letters. And I said, okay, good, I got some reading on my hands. She went back through my, my life, from the person who introduced me to Christ, to my dad, to our pastor, to seminary professors, to coaches I worked for. And she had 25 handwritten notes from all of them. And I opened them. I began to cry my, my face off. And I said, the fact that she would think about me like this, that she would go back and get people that love me to write notes to tell me to encourage me to keep pressing on. We were in a tough moment. We had just gotten fired. And I kept reading the intentionality of all these people saying, keep going, Jack. Just keep going. Just keep going. You know, intentionality should move you. You know when you go to bed, God's still up? (laughs) Intentionality should move you. And here's what separates Jesus from every other leader, even in the arrest. He ordained it. Time and space, the very people that would arrest him, he ordained it. So soldiers, and dare I say, your temptations and trials can look big and bad on the outside. But he ordained it. He didn't let his hands go of your story. He's not going, oopsie, what's going on with Fred and Jane? His mindset isn't, I hope that works out. His mindset is the very soldiers that come to give him the toughest circumstance that ever would be known to man. He meets them in the face. Who do you seek? He's not scared of our problems. So if you're thinking about giving control to Jesus today, let me just tell you, 
He's in control. And you see through his very intentionality that he thought of you before you thought of whatever you're thinking of. And that should give you comfort and solace. Now Jesus is going to interact, so he's intentional. Then what does he do? This is, by the way, I'm going to say this. This is hilarious. You can laugh at this because I kind of like this being a sports guy. There's a few times in the Bible that Jesus does what I like to call talks trash. Okay? That's a Hebrew. You got to go like 50 years of seminary to learn that phrase. But just understand with me here, okay? This is one of those, okay? This is like the, um, forgive me, Travis. I'll never come back after saying this. This is like the your mama joke of Scripture. Okay? Okay? Those of you are familiar with your mama, okay? Or busted, okay? Watch this. Okay, watch this. So Jesus says, knowing all that would happen to him. By the way, that, that's, that's a phrase, knowing all that should happen to him. That's a phrase that if you ever want to read something before Easter, and I know we're after Easter here, but this was what the Lord put on my heart. Read that on Monday. We had an amazing Monday Thursday service, amazing Good Friday service, amazing, all these things that happen here in other churches. But think, read that all week. Jesus knowing what would happen to him. Jesus knowing what would happen to him. Jesus knowing what would happen to him. Jesus is not an accident. This is, none of this is an accident. Jesus of Nazareth said, uh, excuse me, go back to verse 4. Then knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus says, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Hey, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds with the phrase that identifies him as God. Ego in me, I am. You see your name, Jack Easterby, your name, Bill Smith, has both origin and location of existence tied to it. The Smith family had an origin. The Bond family had an origin. The Easterby family had an origin. But when the Son of God says back to those who are trying to be big and bad, the, the OEO soldiers, hey, who are you looking for? By the way, he's asking. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, ego in me. The phrase that was given to Moses when he goes and has to tell Egypt who sent him. Ego in me. The phrase that was given to Ezekiel about what are we going to do? I am. The phrase that was given to priests in the temple when they were told to deal with the holiness of God. I am. The phrase that was given when Jesus tries to identify himself, he says, I am the bread of life. Ego in me. I am the door. Ego in me. I am the resurrection and the life. Ego in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am, Revelation, the alpha and the omega. Ego in me. I am. So what he does in the moment here is he says another way that I can t- you can tell that I'm in control is my existence is not going to be minimalized by my name. My, my existence is not going to be Jack Easterby because Jack Easterby has a start and a finish. No, no, no. I am, I am, which means that I've always been. 
that, that this isn't new to me, that I've always been above time and space. And I, and I say to you today, if you're looking for something to put in control, if you have a wayward child, I am. If, if you have a, a, a tough addiction you're battling, I am. You have a fear in your life that you can't overcome, ego in me, I am. And so the interaction here with God that they have is so amazing, it's above time and circumstance. You see, so many things that we worship have to do with time and circumstance. And so what he does here is say, hey, listen, you're arresting me. I'm allowing you to do. I'm intentional. And then he says after that, hey, by the way, the person you're arresting is above time and circumstance. Ego in me. You want to worship something above time and circumstance? You want to put your hope in something greater than a score on Sunday? How about put it in something that's way above time and circumstances and was when in the beginning in the beginning of the beginning. I think it's so funny that it says a soldier's fall. And to me, that's the trash talking part. It's almost like he says, yeah, I love you. (laughs) Right? Because how confident can a soldier be, right? When he's been on the ground, right? The soldier's on the ground and he falls to the ground. The Bible says he gets back up, right? And then Jesus is arrested. How confident is that soldier? He he just got weak in the knees. Good luck. Even the soldiers that were arresting Jesus, who were sent by Jesus, were in control of Jesus. Were controlled by Jesus. And that's important. It's very important. Please understand, Jesus' intentionality shows him he can be in control. His name, his very name, his existence shows that he's above time and circumstances, which means that he's still in control. Now look at this next part. After they get up off their knees, Jesus answered and said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill of what he had spoken of those you gave me. I lost not one. If you read a lot of Puritan writers, they focus a ton on John 17. John 17 is a huge Puritan chapter. Um, Jesus actually, uh, John 17, I think it's verse 12. He talks about those who you've given me. I've lost not one. It's very interesting, as Jesus talks about this, that he surrenders himself for the very trade of the other men being let go. He he surrenders himself for the very trade. If you want me, then let them go. Isn't that Jesus' very purpose on being on earth? Put it on me and let them go? There's no other theological system that says, put it on me and let them go. I want you to hear this, church. You can line every other theological system up in one category. Earn your way to make yourself better so God will accept you. This is not our theological system that we believe that God has ordained from Scripture. What we believe is that God said, put it on me and let them go. So when you come in here messy, and you come in here with mistakes, and struggles in your marriage, and struggles in your job, and struggles in your finance, and all this weight that comes through living in 2018, Jesus says, put it on me, and let them go. He says, put it on me, I'll stay back and let them go free. Arrest me, crucify me, and let them go. So the trade here is the same trade that it is in your life. It's surrender. There's power in surrender. You see, we live in a world of ego. 
E-G-O, and I always say it stands for edging God out. Because the idea is that we think if we stand pretty in front, with our chest out and buttoned up looking nice, and we're in charge, and everybody doesn't see our mistakes, then we'll earn a place of superiority. But surrender seems to have a contagious ability to earn control. If you had a death sentence, and you were on death row, and you're walking in line, next, next, and you got to the front of the line, and somebody you had never met said, hey, I'll take it, you go free. Would you want to know their name? If you were about to go to the electric chair, and you knew it was your time, you knew what you had done, and you stand, and you walk, step, 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 and they call your name, Jack, your turn. And somebody says, Jack, go free. I'll stay back. Would you want to know a little bit about that person? So Jesus says to the soldiers that he sent intentionally, who he made bow to worship him intentionally, I'll surrender. So the attitude of surrender he gives you, or the challenge he gives you to surrender, is not out of weakness. It's actually a position of strength. Because when you surrender something to you bigger than yourself, you become better. You become stronger. Because now you're under a power that is more sustainable than your own. So one of another reasons why Jesus is in control is the fact that he surrendered. Imagine how big and bad Muhammad looked. Standing up, beating his chest, saying, follow me. But he's not so powerful at his funeral when everybody says, what do we do now? That's why the 40 days Jesus was resurrected are powerful because a movement happened. And people said, this Jesus, we can trust this guy. He did what he said he's going to do. He surrendered his life and now he's back. I would say to you, although surrender looks weak in our society, God is asking us desperately to follow his lead. Hey, I surrendered. Will you? Jesus was intentional. His existence was above time and space. He surrendered. Now, look at this last one, and we'll challenge with this and tell a story and wrap up. Then Simon Peter having a sword. Uh, Travis, I know, has said many times, we relate to Peter. He's a fisherman with a sword. <laughs> Starting off, that's, that's trouble, right? Okay, let's just start, okay? Peter, like my buddy Forrest says, you need to go fishing, right? Okay, all right? Watch out with the sword, buddy. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I think it's so cool that John includes that detail because Malchus, you know what Malchus means? King. The king is fixing the king's ear. Who's, who's really the king? The high priest's servant was there. The high priest was big and bad, wasn't he? We're going to get rid of this Jesus guy. We're going to get rid of him for good. Imagine the meeting the next morning with Falcus. <laughs> you go ahead and get him crucified. I'll be right behind you. <laughs> I was laughing with my wife when we were studying this passage. I said, I know we've heard a lot in the Bible and C.S. Lewis and all these people write these books about high witnesses. Malchus was an ear witness. Now that's funny. <laughs> that's funny right there. Let's finish this scripture and challenge each other. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant off and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 
So Jesus said, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Jesus was intentional. His intentionality shows he can be in control. His existence is above time and space, so we know he can be in control. His surrender wasn't a beat the chest, look at me. It was, I'll give my life. And so he gains control through surrender, not through uh, demanding. And then lastly, he states his purpose. People without purpose shouldn't be in control. Because when times get hard, they won't know what they're doing. Jesus states his purpose. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What was that cup? The cup was the wrath. The the sin that was poured out on him. The disappointment in you and I that God has. It was poured out on Jesus. And, And Jesus embraces it. says, this is why I'm here. Put your sword away. Put your sword away. This is why I'm here. I'm here to die for these people. I know you think you you can save it, Peter. You want to take this band of soldiers through sword to sword and personal hand uh, hand combat, but you can't save it, Peter. Isn't that what we think? Isn't that what Jack does all the time? I'll save it. I'll get it right. I'll just cuss less. I'll just this. I'll just give some money to the church. I'll just try try to be a better person. I'll try to treat my wife a little better. And we get our swords out, and we begin to, eh. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. I got this. And he hands himself over to be crucified. So that now the cup of wrath has been poured out on the sun. And all of you can say, he's in control. Challenge. Malchus is dinner that night with his family. His grandmother comes in and says, how was your day, son? (laughs) What does he say? Well, you won't believe it. Met this guy named Jesus in the garden. This punk named Peter cut my ear off. And then Jesus put it back on. Look, look, look. And his grandmother looks. And there's no scar. There's no even evidence. She goes, good story. But Malchus knows in his heart, doesn't he? He knows what happened. And he says, you know, Grandma, you might not believe me, but there's this man named Jesus who changed my life. And he proved that even though we acted big and bad in the garden, he was in control. My challenge would be that we would all be Malchus's. That no matter what was told, we don't hear about Malchus. It's just an analogy. But here's what I would say to you. The world is telling you Jesus is not in control. And you have evidences in your life and in your rearview mirror of who you are that he is in control. Because his existence is above time and space. Because he surrendered. He was very clear in how he acted, right? Because he's intentional in how he chased down you in the middle of your mess. We have evidences that Jesus is in control. So why wouldn't we let him be in control of our lives? Why wouldn't we let him be in control of the very detail of how we act, react, and serve? Even this afternoon when we're at lunch. Is Jesus in control of you? 
My prayer is that no one would leave here thinking that we're in control. Because no matter what's been happened in my life, whether it's been um, successes, part of athletics, or standing in front of churches, or doing whatever, when I sit before the throne of God, there's only one thing that matters, and that is that God is in control. My prayer is that you'd realize that today. Deep in your soul, deep in your soul, you would realize God is in control. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shit.